Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you on this beautiful sunny day. As Johnny said, glad that uh, rain is uh, behind us uh, for a little while at least. Hello, Auditorium 2. Good to be with you. Uh, greetings to Auditorium 1 across the way. Big howdy to those that are uh, joining us online today. And a big welcome for those that uh, this may be your first time uh, here. And if this is your first time, one of the things that we want you to know about us is that on most Sundays, um, you'll find that we are teaching our way through whole books of the Bible or long passages of Scripture. And we do this for two reasons. One reason is because when God chose to reveal himself to us, one of the main ways that he chose to reveal himself to us is in the 66 books of the Bible. And so if God gave us the Bible to reveal himself, then we feel like we should teach the Bible the way God gave us the Bible, and that is book by book. The second reason that we teach through books of the Bible normally is that uh, we encourage you to read the Bible book by book, not just uh, take your Bible and uh, open it up to some random page and then plop your finger down on some, some verse and then rip that verse out of context uh, interpreting to mean whatever you want it to mean. The best way to read the Bible is to read it book by book. And so to help you understand scripture rightly, we teach the Bible the way that we hope that you will read the Bible. Now, all that said, usually in the summers, we take a break from our book studies. And this summer, we're doing a topical series uh, to better understand um, this topic uh, that's important to how we live out our relationship with God. And as Johnny uh, gave us a little bit uh, of a preview. Um, we're, we're doing a series on church matters, meaning that church matters. It matters to Jesus. He died and rose from the dead to bring it into existence. He promised to establish the church uh, and, uh, and keep the church, to enable the church to stand firm uh, against every form of evil attack from this world. He's coming back for his church and Jesus even calls the church his bride. So if the church matters to Jesus, then as his followers, it ought to matter to us as well. Now, in saying that, I do realize that uh, the local church doesn't matter as much today as it used to in some people's mind. I've been reading a book by a guy named Sky Jethani entitled, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? And on the back cover, he writes, Consider Three Trends. First, distrust of institutions, including the church, is at an all-time high. Second, young people raised in the church are leaving at alarming rates and not returning. And then third, loneliness and so social isolation are rampant. And then he says, it appears that an entire generation is looking elsewhere for the very thing that the church is called to provide. And that right there is the reason why we're doing this series. People who take polls are telling us that 65 to 70% of young people who grow up in Protestant churches, they drop out of church after high school or after they go off to college and they never return. Let that sink in, 65 to 70%. Makes you wonder what the church in 2050 is gonna look like. There are lots of reasons for this. There's intellectual skepticism, culturally influenced lifestyles that conflict with biblically informed values. Um, many of them judge the church as being harsh and judgmental and hypocritical. They say the church feels too much like a corporate machine than a close-knit family. And uh, it's not that all of them reject the faith. Some of them do, but some simply decide that they can live out their faith without being a part of organized religion or the institutional church. And when I hear those, those phrases, organized religion, institutional church, I wince because, because when I think about what Jesus had in mind when he established his church, I'm quite sure that he would not want his bride characterized in those terms. You see, again, the biggest reason we're doing this series is to deconstruct the whole idea of the church being organized religion or hierarchical institution and get back to what Jesus had in mind when he called the church his body and his bride. And to do that, we're looking at the matters of the church. And so far in this series, we've talked about things like church membership and congregational worship 
and spiritual formation. We've already talked about those things, a lot more coming up uh, throughout the summer. But this morning, we're going to look at church leadership. And this is so very important because most often, if a church is unhealthy, it's because its leadership is unhealthy. My friend Bill Wellens puts it this way. He says, healthy leaders, healthy staff, healthy church. Now, the opposite is also true. Unhealthy leaders, unhealthy staff, unhealthy church. Unhealthy leadership is one of the biggest reasons that the church doesn't matter to many people today. I mean, all too frequently, we hear about the rise and fall of celebrity pastors who crash and burn due to pride or arrogance or sexual immorality or all those things. We hear about entire denominations caught up in scandals of abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, and the repeated attempts of its leaders to cover up or explain away those scandals. We see church leaders depicted in movies and TV and Netflix as being mean-spirited and cruel and bigoted and hateful because, sadly, in real life, some of that's true. It is true. And worse, some of you may have been in an unhealthy church environment and you were on the receiving end of that kind of hatefulness and you were beat up or you burned out because of unchristlike church leadership. I say again, I, one of the big reasons that the church doesn't matter to people today is because of unhealthy church leadership. So yeah, it's true. Healthy leaders, healthy staff, healthy congregation, unhealthy leaders, unhealthy staff, unhealthy church. So the question that I want to look at this morning is what does healthy leadership look like? What does healthy, biblically defined church leadership look like? And I want to unpack that for you today because I want you to have confidence in the elders here because we do have healthy elder leadership in this church. Uh, last week, Jason taught from Ephesians 4 about spiritual formation, about how God has given the church gifted leaders to equip its members for, uh, for life and ministry. And in the Ephesians 4 passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about gifted individuals in the church, men and women with gifts of pastoring and teaching and evangelizing. And, and by the way, the gifts uh, listed in Ephesians 4, is not an exhausted list. Uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 mention many more gifts of the Spirit bestowed on men and women who serve in Jesus' church. Gifts of uh, prophecy and administration and encouragement and, and serving, uh, just to name a few. And, and these gifts are given as the Spirit determines, not just to leaders, but to everyone in the church. Now, my point is, when Jesus established his church, he also gave gifts to people in the church, men and women, leaders and followers, some with serving gifts and some with speaking gifts, so that the church as a whole would grow up to be more and more like Jesus himself. But in addition to gifted leaders and followers, God has also ordained that there be a certain group of men in the church who are charged with the responsibility of leading and shepherding God's people as they seek to put Jesus on display in their community. You see, the people of God are not just led by God himself. All through the Bible, you see that the people of God experience his leading through properly appointed leaders. Now, what that looks like may vary from church to church and denomination to denomination, and I'm not gonna get into all the various forms of church government like Episcopalian and Presbyterian and congregational and elder-led, that kind of thing. I'm gonna concentrate on how we understand the scripture's teaching on leadership here as an elder-led church, but it's very clear that there is, no matter what form of church government there is, there's always some form of human leadership. And, and this is important. There's a, there's a difference between being given a spiritual gift, which, by the way, Jim Thompson is going to be speaking about, teaching about uh, spiritual gifts in, I think, a couple of weeks, two weeks. But uh, there's a difference between God giving every person in the church a spiritual gift and God calling certain individuals to a church office. Every Christ follower is given a gift, but only certain Christ followers are called to an office of leadership. 
Now, the most common word in the New Testament to describe the leaders of a local church is the word elders, and we see that in several passages in the New Testament. For example, when the Apostle Paul planted churches, he always appointed elders to lead them before he moved on to another church, or to another location to plant another church. It wasn't enough to have a group of Christians meeting in a certain place for there to be a church. Holy Spirit appointed leaders had to be put in place. For example, in the book of Acts, we're told that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. Again, the work of establishing a new church was not finished until that step was taken. Paul writes to young pastor Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint in every town elders as I directed you. So you see that elders were appointed in every town where new churches were planted. Now, there are other words in the New Testament to describe elders. Sometimes Paul refers to them as pastors or shepherds, uh, Ephesians 4. In other places, they're described as overseers, depending on the translation, maybe bishops. But all the New Testament scholars agree that these words are synonyms for the same office. And we see several examples of that in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 20, we're told that the Apostle Paul called the elders of the church together and then he gave them this charge. He says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, to pastor, to care for the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now sidebar, see that last phrase there, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You see it? The local church matters because Jesus died to bring it into existence. He shed his blood to bring it into existence. But my point is here is that you see how the work of an elder is described. They pastor or shepherd the flock. The elders oversee the spiritual health of those under their care. The over, and they oversee the direction of the church. Sometimes these words are used as nouns. And sometimes these words are used as verbs. Different words, same basic idea of making sure that the flock is cared for as well as guarding against false, creeping, uh, false teaching creeping into the church. Now, Peter basically says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed I exhort you to shepherd, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, you see how all three words are used to describe the same office, elder, shepherd, or pastor, overseer. Now, we won't get into this today, but I do need to say part of guarding the flock against false teaching and false living is the matter of church discipline, which we do practice here for covenant members. Um, but I prefer to call it the ministry of restoration because when elders get involved in calling back a wayward believer back to gospel living, the whole purpose is to restore. It's not to punish. Uh, just to be clear, you never discipline someone for sin. You discipline someone for lack of repentance. But the elders oversee the process of church discipline as part of their guarding of the flock. Now, the point is those called and appointed to the office of elder are charged with making sure the congregation is cared for. For God, and Part of that is a prayer ministry. They're called to pray for the sick, which we just did between services. Caring for the congregation, guarding against false doctrine, creeping into the church and calling wayward church members back to gospel living. 
Now, in addition to elders, the New Testament also talks about deacons. Paul introduces his letter to the Philippians. He writes, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons. So clearly the role of deacons is distinct and different from the role of elders. And from what we can gather in the New Testament, broadly speaking, it seems that the elders serve the church by caring for the spiritual needs of the congregation, whereas deacons serve the church by meeting practical needs. And we get a glimpse of this early on in Acts chapter 6. In the early church, the, uh, there were deacons, proto-deacons, you might say, were appointed uh, specifically by the apostles so they could be free to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Basically, uh, the deacons made sure that in that context, in that story, that both Hebrew widows and, and uh, Greek uh, proselyte to Judaism, converts to Judaism widows were receiving the same care. Evidently, they weren't. And so they appointed deacons to make sure that there were equal distribution portions of food. And in caring for those practical needs, they actually helped preserve the unity of the body as people were learning to, debra- to embrace this new diversity as the people of God. So these two church leadership offices are set forth in the New Testament. They're elders and deacons. They serve in different ways in the church. Their doing is different, but their being is the same. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to 1 Timothy chapter three. And you can follow along in your Bible, or you can just listen as I read. I'm not going to put the passage up on the screen because it's a long passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children in submission. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, his own family, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he, may be, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Verse eight, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve, as, uh, serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, there's a lot that we can unpack here, but I want to focus on one single thing. First and foremost, this passage dealing with the qualifications of elders and deacons is mostly about character. It's about Christ-like character of the people being appointed to serve in these two offices. The, the character of those serving as elders or deacons, they must be above reproach, meaning that no one can make an accusation against them that will stick. They cannot be greedy or addicted to alcohol. They must be hospitable, faithful to their wives and manage their families with dignity and respect. They both must have a long track record of faithfulness as well as have a good reputation with those outside the church. So their being is the same. The biggest difference between the two offices is that elders must be able to teach. They must be able to defend the faith, whereas deacons must uh, hold true to the faith with a clear conscience. Plus the fact the role of elder carries with it a certain spiritual responsibility and authority that is not given to deacons. 
The writer of Hebrews makes this clear. He says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls and they will be held accountable by God for it. So let them do this with joy and not grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, the character qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3 are not meant to be an exhaustive checklist. When Paul writes to Pastor Titus, he gives Titus similar instructions about the qualifications of an elder candidate. But he doesn't say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way, but he's saying, he basically is setting forth the same ideas. And it's the same idea that Peter had in mind in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we looked at when he said the elders should be examples to the flock, good examples, men of character. And that would apply to deacons as well. So when it comes to elders and deacons, as far as the New Testament is concerned, much more is said about their being than their doing. And to tie all of this back to how I began the message, remember the question, what does healthy church leadership look like? The emphasis here on character, on the character qualities of these people serving in these ways, that helps define a healthy leader. So the biblical qualifications help us define healthy leadership. Okay, I hear you. You don't have to scream so loud. I mean, I hear the question. I mean, you know, and I'm... The question is, well, can women serve as deacons and elders? And this is kind of like stepping into a hole full of snakes, (laughs) like Indy did. And I know I'm not going to be able to navigate this in a way that everybody's going to say, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get bit by poisonous emails and texts. But to answer the question, I got to lay a foundation If you've been around here any length of time, you know that we hold to the supremacy of Scripture over all things, over all things traditional, over all things cultural, over all things personal. What God says in Scripture supersedes the way I think things should be, supersedes what my particular church traditions may have been, supersedes the cultural shifts taking place in our world today. So with that foundation... Let's start with the deacons. Can a woman be a deacon? Now, I grew up in a Baptist church. I served as a pastor in three Baptist churches where there was a senior pastor and deacons, no elders. And the deacons were like a board of directors that affected church life at monthly business meetings. The deacons focused on things like property, finances, and putting fires out in the church unless the deacons were the ones that were starting the fires. And I got burned as a young pastor several times. Now, in that church leadership tradition, there are no women deacons. And uh, this church began as a Baptist church in that tradition, senior pastor and deacons. It did, uh, even before I got here, they began to make this change to elders and deacons. But currently, we don't have women serving as deacons. Now, of course, we have lots of women who are carrying out the function of deacons in various forms in the church. I mean, I think our Stephen ministry with men and women serving there, they're basically serving as deacons and caring for people. That's deacon ministry. And in one sense, I do think that God is more concerned with people, men and women, carrying out the role and function of deacons, serving to meet all kinds of practical needs in the church, than he is with who carries the title of deacon especially in a church this size. But I will confess that I've come to see in Scripture that in an elder-led church, women can serve as deacons. Two passages of Scripture support this, I believe. The first is in Romans chapter 16. And Paul has come to the end of his great gospel letter to the Romans. And in chapter 16, it's really amazing how many people he knows in the church of Rome. And he's never been there before. He, knows, he mentions over 30 people in, in chapter 16. And the very first person he mentions in his closing personal greetings is a woman named Phoebe. And he writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints 
and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron, a financial supporter of many people and of myself as well. Now, the word servant there in verse one can also be translated as deacon. In fact, it's the same exact word used to describe the office of deacon in Paul's letter to Timothy that we looked at earlier. And there's no question in my mind that Phoebe was a deaconess who served the church meeting practical needs. Paul mentions eight other women, important women, that served the church uh, in Rome, but none of the other greetings come even close to how he describes Phoebe here. The best reading of that scripture is Phoebe, a deaconess in the church. Now, the second passage that I want to bring to your attention is 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to put this up on the screen. So going back to the verse 8 to talk about deacons. He's made the shift from elders to deacons, and he says, Deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, he's going to use, I don't care what your translation says, the original Greek is this, these are all plural words. They're not male words, male pronouns like when he talked about elder. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and, th- and let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Clearly talking about men here. Verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household wells. Now, so the deacons must be the husband of one wife. Obviously, Paul is talking about men there in verse 12, probably talking about men in verses 8 through 10. But what about verse 11? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The Greek word gune can mean wise, but it's the most common word for women, women as opposed to men. And translated that way, verse 11 would read, women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. If translated that way, in a context Talking about deacons, it would properly be referring to women deacons or deaconesses. Now, that makes sense to me for several reasons, because if Paul meant to say what wives, he would have said their wives. And I know some of your ES, the ESV translation says their wives. The word there is not there in the Greek, even though several English translations insert the word there, there. I worked on that. that um, Second, if Paul addressed the wives of deacons here, why not address the wives of elders? Uh, he, he doesn't do that. Elders and deacons must be the husband of one wife. That's the same. But what's not the same is the additional exhortation to women when he's talking about deacons. So I take it that women can serve as deacons in a church where there are elders and deacons. And those women would serve to meet the practical needs of women, especially in situations where it wouldn't be appropriate for a man to care for a widow or a single woman or whatever. Now, if you want to read more about this, you can check out the Gospel Coalition online article entitled, Does the Bible Support Women Deacons? Yes, by a really great scholar, Thomas Schreiner. Okay, so next question, and I'm asked this with more and more frequency these days. Does fellowship have women elders and women teaching pastors? And the answer to that is no. And so the next question is, why not? So reason being, first of all, when Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, all the pronouns are male. The elders must be a husband of one wife. Plus the fact at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Just before he starts to talk about the qualifications of male elders, Paul says this. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Now, you need to understand how this is a radical pro-women statement in Paul's day. Because first of all, in that day, women could not be in a public meeting with a man. 
And men and women are worshiping together in the same church. Men and women are, have the same gifts going on in the, in the church. But all secondly, women in that day were not allowed to be taught the scriptures. And Paul is saying that men and women can learn right alongside of each other. He's just calling out, most people think that in the church in Ephesus, there was an unruly bunch of women. And he's saying, let them learn in silence. Don't, don't let them try to take over the meeting. Verse uh, 13, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived by Satan and woman, the woman was deceived and sin was the result. Now, Paul's reason for not allowing women to serve as elders is rooted in the order of creation. But even this doesn't sound like what you think it sounds like. It doesn't mean what you think it sounds like. In that culture, everyone understood that birth order always meant that the firstborn, in this case, Adam, had, uh, had a certain role and responsibility and accountability that was not given to Eve. Yes, Eve was deceived, but it was Adam who had to answer for both his sin and her sin. After the fall, God came looking for who? Adam, where are you? He had the accountability. A and... Um, she sinned and Eve sinned and yes, sin spread through the entire human race, but sin comes through Adam, not through Eve. And so again, this goes back to the fact that the firstborn, Adam, had an accountability to God, a role and a responsibility that God didn't put on the woman. Now, <laughs> it's still hard, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like Jesus said in a very different context, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? <laughs> In today's world, not, not many. Uh, hear me. Paul is not dissing women here. He actually is elevating women out of that cultural time. He's simply tying his point back to the creation and fall. Why is that important? Because it's not a cultural issue. It's not culture. It's not a culture difference between ancient culture and modern culture. Now, I don't mean to come across arrogant here, but please don't send me the titles of books and articles and YouTube videos for the opposing view. I mean, there are a lot, I'm, there are a lot of really good Christians, and a lot of good scholars, you know, on the other side. But through the years, I have read many, many books and articles. I've listened, watched videos and all that kind of stuff. I've watched them on both sides of the issue. And as much as I would like to be able to change my mind about this, I can't in good conscience do so, and here's why. To look at what Paul says here and explain the hard to accept, yet plain language of Scripture, to explain it away based on ancient patriarchal culture. If you do that based on culture, then that opens the door to explain away pretty much any other thing in scripture that you don't like in order to embrace modern culture. So the hermeneutic you use to justify women elders and women teaching pastors and all that kind of thing, whatever hermeneutic you use to get around the plain statements of the text, you can use that same thing to pretty much do with the Bible whatever you want. And that's exactly what's happening in the church today in many churches today, with other things like the redefinition of marriage and male and female genders. But you see, how God has designed life to work in this world, does, it's, it's, it's countercultural. God doesn't accommodate himself to the whims of modern culture. He calls people in every culture, ancient or modern, to embrace life the way he has said it's supposed to be lived. And in ancient culture, this was paradigm-breaking elevating women to a status that they had never experienced prior to this time. Now hear me, scripture makes it clear that men and women are equals at the foot of the cross, that's Galatians 3:28. Scripture makes it clear that God gives men and women the same kinds of spiritual gifts, meaning men and women are partners together in every area of ministry. All the ministries in the church are open to all qualified men and women with the singular exception of the office of elders. Women can serve as deacons, teach, lead worship, serve communion, be in full-time paid ministry, and boy, we're thankful because we got a bunch of full-time women around here who 
are really great folks. There you go. And she said, well, well, what about Deborah? Okay, what about Deborah? She was a judge. She wasn't an elder. Well, what about uh, Phoebe and Priscilla and Lydia and Junia, who, call, who Paul calls an apostle in Romans 16, 7? Not, an, not one of the 12, but one of somebody who was sent out. And I look, there were many, many, many women who served in important leadership roles in the early church, but none of that has any bearing on the office of an elder. None of them are ever referred to as holding to the office of an elder. Ancient church history, uh, like from the um, second century, you see that in writings, there were deacons, women deacons, not elders. And here's the thing. Not every man can serve as an elder. Only men who meet a certain biblical qualification and, and who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit can serve as elders. Think of it this way. For whatever God's good purposes... He chose one tribe, the tribe of Levi, out of all the 12 tribes of Israel, only Levi could serve in the tabernacle and the temple. Only one tribe. Did that mean that, that Levi was better than all the other tribes? Of course not. It simply meant that God chose the tribe of Levi, Levi and charged them with sacrificial duties to serve his people that he did not give the other tribes, and he held them accountable for that. Same is true with Jesus' disciples. Many men and women followed Jesus, and, and there were women there at the, in the upper room. There were lots of women in the room in Acts when the Holy Spirit fell. Lots of very important women in the launch of the church in the book of Acts, but Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. And you say, well, well, but that, that, that would have just been too radical. No, not if you choose a tax collector. That was more, that was, that, that, no, 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 no. So that's the kind of arguments you get from the other side. Okay, enough said. If you feel that you really must send an email, please send your emails to jthompson <laughs> at fellowshipgreenville.org. A healthy church leadership needs to have a healthy understanding of Scripture when it comes to these things. But let's get back to how we started and ask our original question this way. What does healthy elder leadership look like? And there are six things that I see in Scripture and that we have practiced here uh, for 26 years that I have seen shape a healthy elder culture. Actually, these six things mark the elder culture that I was a part of for nine years in Little Rock, Arkansas, before coming here. So I have 35 years, for 35 years, I've had the privilege of being a part of a healthy elder culture. And those six marks of a healthy culture, elder culture are longevity, plurality, unity, accountability, humility, and pneumatic decision-making. Let me, let me quickly unpack each one. Longevity. First of all, the very word elder itself speaks of someone who has walked with Jesus for a considerable length of time. And Paul mentions this when he talks about how an elder should not be a new convert. Now, there's more here, though. Um, most churches have an elder board where men rotate on and off. They serve for three or four years. They rotate off. New elders are elected to serve in their place. Now, I got a real problem with that because if a man appointed to the office of elder desires to serve as an elder and he's biblically qualified, then why does he have to rotate off? Why can't a lay elder serve for life like I serve for life as a pastor? Why is there a difference between my calling to be a pastor and his calling to be an elder. It makes no biblical sense. There's no ground for that. So we don't do it. We have three elders that I have, the, have had the privilege of serving with from the very beginning of my beginnings of my ministry here. All the other elders have been around 10 years or longer. And I'm telling you, longevity builds trust and camaraderie and community. And the wisdom that comes from seeking God's will together for a long period of time. Longevity is one of the indispensable marks of healthy eldership. 
Plurality, number two, as we saw earlier, elders, plural, were appointed in every city where Paul planted churches. There may have been a gifted pastor teacher in those churches, men like Timothy and Titus, but the plurality of elders ensured that the spiritual authority of the church never rested in one individual, never. And notice elders were appointed, not elected. Or as we say around here, elders are selected by other elders, not elected. Meaning on a regular basis, the elders will pray and will evaluate, is there a need for an additional elder? And if there is, then we will talk, we will pray and get names and we'll talk to men who are potential candidates. And if a man has, a, has the unanimous approval of the elders, he's presented to the congregation with a question, do you, know, do you know of any reason why this man would not be qualified to serve as an elder? And we get the responses from the congregation and if he proves to be above reproach in that way, then he's invited to sit at the elder table. Currently, we have nine men serving as an elder. There you see them, Stan Barrett, myself, uh, Mark Hall, Chris Corley, Ken Krutoff, Justin Mall, Craig O'Neill, Art Ringer, and Rob Marks. There are two staff elders right now, myself and Rob Marks, and seven lay elders. We always like to have many, at least double the number of lay elders than, than staff elders. The two staff elders are the link between the directional oversight of the elders and the daily operational oversight of the staff. Now, right now, Jason Malone sits at the elder table as uh, a non-voting elder, but in January, when he becomes the, direct, the next directional pastor, he will become an elder, and then there will be 10 men serving at elder, as elders at that time. Third mark of healthy leadership, unity. Now, even though our constitution doesn't require it, the elders have decided that we must be in unanimous agreement when we vote to move in a certain direction. We believe that, just like in the church in Acts, God can and will bring us to one mind as we seek to follow him, especially if we don't come to the table with our own personal agendas, but we're looking, all of us are looking for God's agenda. That means that whenever we present something to you for affirmation, like expanding ministry to the Adams Mill property or the annual ministry plan uh, that Johnny mentioned this morning, you can be assured that 100% of the elders are on board with what we're presenting. And that's pretty strong, if you ask me. And you'll never hear us say, well, God told us this and God told us that. I've heard a lot of celebrity pastors use that kind of language. We'll never say that. We'll say it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to go in this direction or that direction. But you might ask, but isn't it kind of dangerous to have to have unanimous consent? I mean, that means that one guy could grind everything to a halt by deciding to be the, the odd man out. That's true. But in doing eldering this way for 35 years, that has never happened because of all the other ingredients of healthy leadership. And if it ever did happen or begin to happen, the, a man like that would be called out, and if he didn't change, he would be asked to step out by the other elders, which leads to the next healthy elder leadership quality, and that's accountability. Your elders hold each other accountable. Specifically, once a year, we have an annual time for an accountability checkup. But at any time, we're not afraid to speak the truth in love to one another, and we're not afraid to call someone out if they're out of line. At the end of our elder meeting, every one of the elder meetings, uh, it's always the same. We have what we call a process check. And the chairman will say, he will ask the question, uh, what went well tonight, what didn't go so well, something along that line. And I remember way, way back when we first started the process check, I got called out like 12 times in a row. What didn't go so well, the chairman would ask, and someone would say, well, you know, it didn't feel so good to me when, Charlie, you, you got so intense in trying to make your point, it felt like you got off subject and, and it just felt like a personal attack to me. Now, I know my being intense is probably hard, to, hard for you to believe, but uh, <laughs> 12 times in a row. 
And I'll tell you, as a young pastor, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because it's one thing to say you believe that God speaks through the plurality of elder voices, but when you try to silence those voices because you think your way is the right way, you need to get called out for it. Healthy elder culture is shaped by elders holding elders accountable for their words and action, but for accountability to work, there has to be humility. Verse 5. Meaning, the humility of not thinking of yourself as someone in authority, but as someone under authority. Peter said, not lording it over those under your care. Humility in recognizing that God speaks through the unanimous plurality of nine men, not just through you. Paul said to Titus that an elder must not be self-willed or arrogant or quick-tempered. Humility in being teachable and correctable and willingly accountable to the other elders. Humility in being vulnerable with your own sins and struggles, being vulnerable with things that you might be struggling with or going through. The humility of you taking yourself out if something goes on in your family or something is going on at work that's requiring so much of your attention that you're really not mentally and spiritually and emotionally present in an elder meeting. You just say, I I need to take a little sabbatical for a while. No shame in that. That's honored, that that kind of humility. Humility is the most talked about biblical qualification in the passage about eldering that we looked at from 1 Peter chapter five. He says, all of you be clothed with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. I can assure you that all 10 men sitting at the elder table right now are men of humility or they would not be there. Humility is an indispensable mark of healthy elder leadership. And finally, number six, pneumatic decision-making. Now, I would have given $10 for another illity word here. And I think I've come up with it. I think we call it pneumatility. <laughs> pneumatility. Because pneuma is the Greek word for spirit, and the number one job for men sitting at the elder table is to seek and to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in all things. We don't come to the table with personal agendas. Our one, one agenda is to seek the mind of God, the mind of Christ. And you've heard, it say, heard us say it over and over that we look for where God is working, And when he shows us where he's working, we look for how we can join him in his work. Elders don't sit around the table strategizing to come up with our plans and then ask God to bless our plans. No, we seek to know what God's plan for fellowship might be and then to pray and seek the Spirit's leadership to figure out how we can join God in his work. After all, we are shepherds. Under shepherds, the ultimate shepherd is Jesus, who Peter calls the chief shepherd. And when we talk about fellowship DNA, one of, one of the five marks of our DNA is pneumatic decision-making versus pragmatic decision-making. That's the point. So what are the ingredients for healthy elder leadership in a church? I, I came up with this graphic that... Uh, the. The more I think about it, the more I'm excited about it. Um, Longevity, plurality, unity, accountability, humility, pneumatility. (laughs) Can you see from this diagram how they're all interrelated? Every quality is vitally connected to all the others. For example, like if you follow the lines, longevity enhances plurality, it enhances unity and accountability and humility and the ability for a group of men who serve together for a long time to discern the leading of the Spirit or take humility. Humility grows out of the trust of long-term relationship. It grows out of being unified, of being one mind and one heart in seeking God's agenda for the church rather than personal agendas. Humility flourishes when there is accountability and, and men can be corrected and called out. You see, I could go around, but the, you, you get the idea. When these six marks of healthy leadership are functioning the way they're supposed to be, listen, it would be nearly impossible for a church or an elder or a pastor to run off the rails. 
And what I want you to hear in all this is that your elders do not carry themselves like a corporate board of directors. Their primary job is not managing financing. Uh, Of course, they watch over and make decisions regarding the big picture of church finances along with an amazing financial team. But finances and business strategies are not their primary business. No, your elders are shepherds, under shepherds of the chief shepherd. They are a community of God-appointed, spirit-led leaders who oversee the spiritual health of the body and who seek God's direction for the church. And let me say, what you enjoy and experience here at Fellowship is due to the shaping influence of your elders and staff. So it's true, isn't it? Healthy leaders, healthy staff, healthy congregation. And when that rings true in a congregation, a church like that really does matter. A church like that really does make a difference in the community and in the world. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for Fellowship Greenville. I personally thank you for being able to serve here 26 years, and I look forward to the future, continuing to serve. I thank you for the men that I have served with over low these many years. I thank you for the ones that I serve with now. I thank you how everything that we've talked about this morning could be said of each man at the table. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue our work of caring for the flock here and guarding against false teaching, false living, creeping in to our body here. I pray that you would guard our hearts. May all of these, may we continue to be growing, growing to grow in all of these marks of, of healthy leaders so that our elder culture is healthy. Preserve us, protect us from the attacks of the evil one, And God, continue to work in us and through us to advance the gospel here in Greenville and around the world. And we'll give you the praise and glory that you rightly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.